Welcome to the class tonight. This is the second part of John's uh, two, second John. And then next week, Mickey will pick up with third John. So Shaney did first John. You're going to hear a lot of some of the same things, of course, that Shaney went over. So in the areas that she really expounded on so well, we're going to kind of push over and uh, off to, to some other things. So um, let us open with prayer. Dearest Lord Jesus, we just thank you that by the grace, mercy, and peace of God the Father, the Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, we are not only here, but we are here in the presence of a supernatural power called the triune. We bow to that. We're sorry that we don't take it more seriously at times. And we just ask you, Father, to guide our words. May we please, please be blessed by your word. Oh, it's so big, so big. And we thank you for it. In so many ways, we would be so lost in this world, I think, if we did not have your word and the fellowship of the church and the Holy Spirit. So in the name of Jesus, we all say amen. Amen. Okay, so we're going to um, do the second part of 2 John. We're going to read the scripture, start off with that. If you, now, the one you have this week has a lot of color in it, and there's a reason for that. I wanted to call your attention to every time he mentions love and truth, so that's in a certain color. And every time he mentions the triune, that's in red. And then look at all the blue and the green, because those are all pronouns. I mean, it's just you, you, we, we, us, us. It's just so wonderful. So if you want to read along with me, please feel free to from um, this version. He starts off with the elder. To the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth, because the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoiced greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth, as we receive commandment from the Father. And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Having many things to write you, I do not wish to do so with paper and ink. But I hope to come to you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. What a lovely writer John is. Last week we covered the first four verses. This week we'll finish the rest of the chapter. And if you remember, I said John kind of serves a sandwich. Or that's what we refer to it in our family. You know, the first layer is exhortation. Then he puts in some warning. And then he ends it with a promise. So... Whenever we try to deliver things and stuff to smaller people, <laughs> we try to do it in that sandwich style. And sometimes even to my, my old, old children, I'd still do that. So um, 
we are going to not only finish the exhortation tonight, we're going to dig into the warning and then we'll close with his promise. And quickly, though, I feel like even more so with what's happened in Pat and I's life today, my husband is in the hospital. He's um, surgery. surgery. (laughs) So um, anyway, even more so, I feel like I need to say this, which I did at the very end before I had it copied. You know, I do a lot of grandmawing, and so I'm driving around listening to the Christian station, and I heard this man on Focus on the Family. I don't even know who he was, but man, did his words just penetrate me, and I thought, there's a lot of people that need to probably hear that too. Because the people in our world that don't know Jesus, this guy said, never forget, Jesus knows them. And that just flooded me with like, ah, that is so true. We forget that Jesus knows them. And if their book, if their name is in that book of life, (laughs) he's going to find them. I mean, they're going to find him. It's it's. It's going to all end all, all well. So we just need to keep praying for those in our world that do not know him. Starting with verse 5. And now I plead or beseech with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you. Where have we heard that before? But that which we have had from the beginning, we've heard that before, that we love one another. So plead or beseech in the Greek is just a really strong word. It even translates as a very strong posture of ask, uh, beseech, pray, desire, intent. You see Matthew all through Acts and into the epistles use that word plead or beseech. But this is the interesting part because although John is using this strong word, he's not commanding them. Instead, through the spirit of God, ooh, He is tenderly with this deep endearment calling to this group to reveal to them the essentials of truth. Why? Well, have you ever wondered sometimes about the aspects of free will? I sure have. It's like some days don't you say, God, take my free will away. Just just make it easier. Just do it for me. But love will pierce or stick. Stick to you where authority does not. And God knew that. And when you couple that love with the ingredient of essential truth, wow, it builds this effective combination of anointed power. This possibly speaks of just one of the whys of free will. Because love and truth from God, think about it. Those two God-driven things produce this organic, oh, I lost my place, this organic power. Of course, when we become enabled with that kind of supernatural power, we want to do what he wants, don't we? We do. He loves us. He loves you. He loves me. So let me just kind of repeat that. Love will stick within us where authority does not. And when you couple love with the ingredient of essential truth, it produces this effective combination of anointed power. And thus, what happens? We're drawn to God. I would just really encourage any of you who have kids, small kids or small grandkids, keep this in mind. Um, I remember when I first learned about the personalities, you know, sanguine, choleric, I think... um, I can't remember the guy who wrote them. He was a Christian guy, and I read every one of his parenting books. Sorry, but my mind's not working as effectively as I would like it to tonight. But when I realized that my oldest daughter was her strongest part of her personality was choleric, which is her basic need is to be in control, I stopped trying to control her. And instead, I began to ask questions like, What are you feeling out of control about? And every time, instead of bucking against me, she would just melt. So authority will only go so far, won't it? And God knows that. Going on to the next verse, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, wrote is graphio, sacred books written with direction. 
of course, we know that the direction is the Holy Spirit for our beloved Bible. A new, this is just (laughs) basically saying unheard of. And we know that when Jesus appeared in the New Testament, especially regarding the commandments and our thought life, people started hearing a lot of things they had not heard of before when he started teaching them about the essence, the real essence of the commandments. Commandment just meaning uh, the commandments of the Mosaic law or Jewish tradition. Again, Shani covered this old new meeting so well in her presentation that I think we're just going to push on. And the next section of the verse is, but that which we have had from the beginning, I have fallen in love with the word, the beginning, because the Greek meaning is the active cause Think about that, the active cause. It made me kind of think of yeast, how it's the active cause of bread rising and becoming this delicious thing called bread. But it moves from the posture of the antiquity of obligation, you know, that little checklist that we come up with every once in a while. Got to have my quiet time. Got to do this. Got to do that. It kind of gets rid of that and, and instead catches you on fire to a sincere fruitful obedience to God, the the God that we know is real and is waiting for us. And then we embrace the active cause by walking in the spiritual holiness of set-apartness, just being different because of God. Again, being drawn to the anointed power of God, which calls us to Walk in the love designed from the beginning of time. Here again, remember last week how we talked about some of some of the words that John uses in second in all the epistles, and I, I would say the Bible is replete with them. They're words that have a lot of longevity. So while they're reaching back in the past, they are also reaching into the future, which is forever. But then you say, and then what? Well, once that active um, cause catches on and we're pressed to go towards it, the active cause is that we love one another. John says, love. Again, that agape kind of love. Scripture tells us the integrity of our Christian life can be measured by our love for one another. I ask you, which one of these... This goes on forever, 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 forever. Which one of these would represent the measurement of our life, of love? Because it is supposed to go all the way back and all the way forward. Just a little tool. I thought it was kind of cute. Verse 6. This is love, that we should walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment. That as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. This is love, that phrase again, calling us to love, calling us to that deepness of agape love, that we walk. Here we have, once again, that kind of sing-song phrase. I don't know if you remember last week, peripatio, to me, kind of sounds like automatopoeia. Ah, you know, peripatio, peripatio. Um, Meaning, occupying a or the rightful place on earth for God. And what would that prove if we did that? Universal obedience is the proof of the goodness and the sincerity of Christian virtues because that's what produces Christian love. And isn't that what grabs people's attention when we practice that? Christian love day in, day out. The divine weight of the commandments, which I don't know, sounds kind of soothing to me because I know the yoke of God's commandment is supposed to be like the yoke of Jesus's, you know, that he talks about. My yoke is, my yoke is light. Commandments can be a heavy burden or they can be a guide. And I think they're actual genuine gifts to us from God, our father. And lastly, the fundamental duty in the gospel all boils down to walk in love, to occupy the spirit of God's love day in, day out, according to his commandment. Notice 
that John's description, it echoes John's message also in John 14, 15, but he's not asking us to do something that he says. He's asking us to do something that is echoing Jesus's words regarding his plan and purpose. John goes on to say, this is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. And all of these key words we've been over earlier. So let's kind of drill down to some applicable layers, especially the phrase, you should walk in it. We are hearing all kinds of familiar words in second, first and second John, and I'm sure we're going to hear some of them in third John too. The beginning, commandment, walk in it. John is just reminding this group of people that he's writing to and us of Jesus' message. Our love is dependent on what? Obedience. When we do not love, we do not obey. It's that simple. We can't erase the ripple effects of obedience, nor can we erase the ripple effects of disobedience because they both go beyond our own limited version of a circumstance or, or even a consequence. Think of the, commute, the accumulative consequences of, let's say, even the last decade of disobedience regarding displacing God in our own country and throughout the world. And then also remember, also remember that a lot of those keywords we covered last week and this week, they represent and denote longevity. Perhaps John is warming up the reader to take on the warning. John is saying, you should walk in it, love and truth. So what is another way to divine love and truth regarding walking in it? And it occurred to me, it's, it's loving others within the limits or boundary that truth allows. Love and truth both have boundaries. We talked about that last week. Anything without boundaries loses meaning. Remember that pastor's definition, love without truth is enabling, truth without love, it's just plain mean. And that's kind of the way it rolls. Simple but true. Okay, I think we're ready. Let's go into the warning. <laughs> we're going to bite into the, to that part of the sandwich and see how John is encouraging others to build awareness so that we can resist. Second John 7.11 says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver. And in Antichrist, look to yourselves that we don't lose those things we work for, but that we may receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him, for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds." Wow, let's kind of break those verses down. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the, the flesh. Deceivers means the, second, the same thing in Second John as it did in First. It's an imposter. It's a willful misleader. But I think the best word to describe it is it is all intentional. There is just don't even be naive in thinking that it's not because it is. John warned his readers against the heresy of those who denied the incarnation of the Son of God. And guess what? Are we fighting that heresy today? Yes, we are. To forewarn is also a way to forearm others in resisting their trials through awareness. The next phrase, have gone out into the world. This is basically John just saying they come before the public. They enter the public square. And we see that also. Who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. The body as opposed to the soul or the spirit. Think about that for just a tiny minute and you will realize here's where the deceivers always begin. 
do they not? Saying the body as opposed to the soul or the spirit. Many Bible scholars believe that John was primarily warning them of traveling teachers or missionaries. And this is where the exegesis is vital when you start digging into that culture and the current events of these ancient writers. The deceivers were circulating and refuting and discounting that Jesus was fully man and that he was fully part of the great triune. Instead, they were teaching that Jesus was an ordinary man. And there are sacred books. I've read them I, in studying other religions that actually state that heresy. Jesus was a great man, but he was just a man. Instead, they insisted, some of them, that, well, maybe he was Christ, but only for a short time. Others taught that, well, maybe he was an angel encouraging, what, angel worship. And we know what the angels say about that. Don't do it. (laughs) Don't bow before me. I'm just a servant just like you. Do we hear all of those superior reasonings today? Yes, we do. John, of course, was teaching the truth. What is the truth? Jesus was man. And I've got a couple of um, reference for you. Philippians talks about him being born in the likeness of man. Hebrews talks about how Christ as true man. And because he was a man, the devil could tempt him. Yet Jesus did not sin. He always obeyed his father. And a good reference to back that up is 1 Peter. He is still a man in heaven in a supernatural and glorified manner. We've got five different verses there that substantiate that. And because Jesus is fully man, Jesus knows and understands our problems and weaknesses. Thank you, Lord, that you do. Because then we can come to you with so much more openness and vulnerability. Hebrews tells us that. He also taught that Jesus is the Christ Because he did save us from our sins, and that is something that mere man can't do. Romans 3, 10 through 12 talks about that. He was also God the Son. You have a great reference in Hebrew. That with God the Father and the Holy Spirit, Jesus created the world. One of my favorite verses, John 1, 1 through 5. And Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy even says there is only one God. I want to encourage you to maybe look up these references because you know how it is. I mean, other people can tell us things and stuff and we learn. But when do we really have that clear revelation? It's when we start digging in the scriptures. And I know for myself, when I start digging... Wow, the revelation from God himself, then you get really tuned in to what his ultimate plan is. And that's his ultimate plan is to have that personal and individual revelation to you so that we can then go forward the active cause of telling others about our revelation of Jesus Christ. So who were these? I mean, what were these deceivers teaching? They were teaching a early heresy called docetism. And it's not a word I like to say because I don't say it very well. So may, that's why I phonetically sounded it out, which requires the absolute strongest rebuke from John. Now, we hear it maybe referred to as Gnostic, dualism, or either pluralism, but it's all steamy, stemming from the same belief. Jesus was not all man, and he wasn't all God. Well, he was. Here's a quote from one of my my favorite guys, Chuck Missler. He says, this letter, 2 John, is a response to the Gnostics. And what are Gnostics? A mixture of mysticism, Eastern speculations, and Jewish legalism. Now, one of the handouts that I've given you tonight kind of is a chart of how he breaks that down and we're not going to get into it but I do want to ask you later to make sure you look at that second box because it really he does a really good job of defining it and if you ever are asked well what is a Gnostic you know what's what's the big deal how how are they different from 
a believer, you'll have some good tools in your toolbox. So how do we see this Gnostic belief still prevalent now? It is so prevalent in so many ways, but always remember that when it, when it begins, it begins with the devaluing of Jesus. Then it starts layering on top of that whatever progressive idea they may have today. We are witnessing, if you would have told me this five years ago, ten years ago, I wouldn't have believed you. We're witnessing the creation of AI Jesus and all the way to all the theories about, you know, the aliens in outer space. The deceit of Gnostics, this is so important, has no boundaries, none whatsoever. That's why it keeps changing. The truth of God has boundaries, which creates meaning and reason. (laughs) We look around now and look at the truth, quote unquote, that's floating around. And no wonder people are confused. No wonder they are lost. Second John 7a says, this is a deceiver and an antichrist. Deceiver, we have, we have actually defined that quite a bit. And again, I'm just going to add maybe another word, seducing, leading into error, and of course, doing so intentionally. And we've looked at this word before. We will look at it again a little bit later. But these deceivers claimed that their message was superior teaching above the Orthodox Christian one. John warned that they are not even to be received in your home, which sounds harsh, doesn't it? But why? Deceivers undermine the glory and the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, first and foremost. That's their intention, and it is intentional. Deceivers who intentionally mislead are actually imposters. After all the facts of Jesus and his resurrection and the testimony of his deity, these deceivers strongly oppose all that Jesus was, all that Jesus is, and all that he's going to be. John not only calls them deceivers, <laughs> he adds, and an antichrist, antichristo, an enemy of the Messiah. Any antichrist attempts, like we said earlier, to delude our souls as well as our minds. So we cannot be naive or even slightly entertain any type of group deceit. We know that the ultimate fulfillment of deceit, the Antichrist, the Antichrist, will appear and lead humanity in an end times rebellion against God. So we need to stand firm as Ephesians 6 instructs us to do. I do just want to say an aside to you, it looks like we have a lot of pages tonight, but that's because I did it in 14 font because I'm old. So it's not as many pages as you think. Last week, I tried to when I was editing, oh, update the class one and then update my 14 font. And this week I thought, no, I'm doing You're getting it in 14 font. And I'm sure some of you appreciate that. So anyway, here is the following warnings. Look to yourself that we do not lose those things we work for, but that we may receive what a full reward. He says, look to yourself meaning discern, perceive, to yourself means the church. John understands that even us, the elect, may be endangered, which is why we should never, ever, ever play with deceit in any form or fashion. Even now, the same warning, I think, is key to living in in the world today. John goes on to say that we do not lose those things we worked for. Lose those things, meaning perish, destroy. Just some of John's concerns of what might be rendered useless were the following. The reputation regarding the superior nature of the power of God's word. In other words, Jesus' messages. And we don't ever want to lose those. The ability to experience conviction regarding evilness of sin. I know that might sound trite to some degree, but don't you appreciate the conviction of the Holy Spirit? It just, I mean, you know, it's so easy to be thinking that we're on, we're on, we're on the road, we're on the road. And then we get off that 
2%. And then if we're not careful, we wake up and we're this far away and we go, how did that happen? We have to keep the conviction of the Holy Spirit so in tune. <clears throat> the ability to, uh, I mean, to go, going beyond a boundary, going beyond the teaching of Christ, who, who is, who was, and what he has done for us. We don't need to embellish the gospel. Many times we've said we don't need to dramatize, you know, the end of the age or the church age, and we don't, and neither do we need to embellish the gospel. God's truth is supernatural. It's perfect. It's complete. Also, this is one of the things I thought about. What about all the proclaimers of God that are not only here now, but all the ones that have gone on before us, like Chuck Missler, who I have quoted quite a bit in this one, A.W. Tozier. <laughs> Imagine him being discredited. C.S. Lewis, Billy Graham. It is not just about us right now, but again, it's about far behind and far ahead. I am sure most of you are probably no different than me. I can look back on some times that I feel like I did lose some ground with God because of, well, I'm going to be polite and just call it the way I allowed life's, life to interfere in my relationship with God at times. Regret them bitterly, confess to God my sorrow for not seeing him as I should have during those times. But the one thing we know, the final synopsis is there should be a progression in our walk. And I know that even 10 years ago, the mystery of the gospel was not as deep and wide as it is to me now. Uh, I don't, I just simply at this age, I don't want to waste one moment. I don't want to waste one moment of the wonderful privilege of getting to know him better, especially when you know he's like this all the time, just ready to love us. He loves us so much. A quick quote. This guy actually taught at Harvard and Princeton. He said, there is a true progress in the Christian life, but it is progress based upon a deeper knowledge of the historical and biblical Christ. Mickey, I couldn't help but think of you when I read this because you're always pounding in the history to us and how important it is for us to know that history. Progress on any other ground may be called progress that leaves God behind and is therefore not progress at all. This guy took a huge stand back in his day for biblical inherency during his lifetime. That's, I mean, he pounded upon it. The Bible, it is infallible. It is true. And we have got to do that too. 8C says, but that we may receive a full reward, meaning what is due or promised. And again, when you combine receive, that we receive, with the word full, meaning thoroughly permeated with, and then you add on to that reward, meaning that which God bestows and or will bestow upon good deeds and endeavors. And, and what they have gained as a result. This cumulative effect and cause of obedience to God. Man gives us awards, doesn't he? But they're all going to be gone someday because everything that we can see will be gone. God gives us rewards. And guess what? They last for an eternity. Wow. Okay, moving on to verse 9. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. Whoever transgresses, turns away to go by the side of, contrary to, and does not abide, not residing in, remaining in, to be held continually in the doctrine of Christ, Jesus' teaching, his gift of salvation, does not have God, and this is the absolute negative, does not have God, Theos, the supreme divinity, God the Father. I think John rolls out in this verse two kind of twofold dangers. The evil departure from light, because when we get away from light, then we have a harder time understanding and and 
the gospel and God's revelation of it. The departure from God himself due to the lack of abiding in the Christ and the doctrine of Christ. And that could be a whole lesson, but not tonight. 9b says, he who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. So now he's saying the exact opposite of what was previously laid, laid out. He's saying it is the doctrine of Christ that is appointed to guide us to God. God has set his seal upon the doctrine of Christ. Think about that. Not only does Jesus, the supreme part of the triune, hold power with these things, these words that he's delivering us, but God himself set a seal upon it to preserve the doctrine of Christ. It is the way that God draws souls to salvation and to himself. It provides the advantage and the happiness of a firm adherence to the truth of God. And again, those boundaries therein. That is priceless, especially as, as we listen to others try to tell us something contrary to the spirit. Doesn't your soul just immediately respond when you hear someone saying something, you know that's not true. It's just like, whoa, <laughs> whoa, whoa, God's whoa. Mm-hmm. It enriches us with holy love to the Father and the Son. It unites us to Christ and also the Father. And I think it prepares us for that endless, endless enjoyment of them both someday. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm excited. Let's go. Let's go tonight. Mm-hmm. Verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. Let's look into this verse and see how maybe John intended it to be understood then and then look at how we might apply it now. The phrase do not receive him into your house nor greet him. The actual meaning is have no religious connection with them. And it sounds harsh, but listen as to why John gives this warning. To welcome these deceivers into your own home indicated that you were sharing in their wicked work. Because in in these days, in the ancient days, traveling teachers were totally provided by the houses or the churches that they stopped at and where they taught in. They were also given a blessing. We use the word blessing Oh, bless you, bless you, in such a sedate way. But back then, they really carried a true biblical sense to it. Back then, when you gave God's blessing, it was real, it was anointed, and it was beneficial. Because you could use that endorsement of each church's blessings and provision to gain entry into other churches. So that's why John is saying, be careful. These ancient churches were so careful to obey the true message of Jesus. And the leaders of that day, they didn't have any trouble at all calling them out. That's how creeds were kind of um, brought about within the churches. These leaders would write them down. Jesus' message, the important things that were supposed to be drilled upon, tack it on the wall of their home because so many of them could not afford to have somebody actually write out the way or Jesus' word. These deceivers were people who claimed to be leaders. They were advanced thinkers, progressive, refusing to have profound knowledge, theological liberalism. That was then. And oh my, isn't that true now? (laughs) Does that not ring true now? They were reevaluating all the Christian biblical doctrines in light of modern science, purporting that the Bible was not inspired by God, but the work of fallible mankind who were limited by ignorance and the superstitions of their times. And back then, the Gentiles were really known for a lot of their, their superstitions, but so were the Jewish leaders. But another, <laughs> wow, this is happening now, too. Going back to the alpha and numerical value that we hit on last week, God's word has depth and width beyond the greatest and most prolific philosopher. He has the greatest profoundness 
among the most brilliant mathematicians or scientists, if you took all the geniuses since mankind and rolled them all up into one entity, they wouldn't even come close, not even come close to the value of this great triune. Yeah. And yet they were being told that back in that day and were being told that in this day. In the first churches, the believers were generous and hospitable believers like this elect lady in this book of John, as well as believers like Gaius in the next book who entertained. They welcomed traveling ministers and fellow Christians, and not only with food and hospitality, but many times financial, physical aid. And John warns not to give deceivers a positive welcome, nor entreat them to stay or visit your homes. How is that prevalent now? Hopefully, you will talk about it in your small group time because that's one of your discussion questions. Their homes many times were their churches. So how do we balance that direction now? Again, I'm anxious and I'm sorry I won't be around later to hear what, what you guys come up with. Verse 11, for he who greets them shares in his evil deeds. John's words sound very, very harsh, but he has not lost his love because he's pointing to the consequence of the sowing of those sowing basic errors of biblical truth. Do not bless them or bid them Godspeed. Do not attend their prayer services. To do so would to propagate a fatal error within the fold of the body of Christ. We know this did happen, though, in biblical times because of what? The book of Jude. First, second, third John warns, be careful, they're out there. And Jude says, oh no, they're in here. There are many ways of sharing the guilt of people's transgressions. Couple silence, indolence, the lack of concern, private contribution, publicly assisting or even defense of their posture or position. Ultimately, it comes down to celebrating and even legalizing sin. We need to ask ourselves, to whom do we contribute? Who do we publicly assist? Who do we defend in position or posture? And as we all did yesterday, I hope, how do we vote regarding legalizing sin at times? Again, we'll talk about this in our group discussion time. Second John twelve thirteen, John's farewell. Having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. Having many things to write to you. So John is merely saying that pen and ink, it might be a pleasure, but personal visitations, face-to-face are so important. Just like what we're doing tonight, the body of Christ getting together. And when we later break into our small groups, oh, that is precious time, isn't it? How many of you have gotten to know each other so much better Anytime we do that in our classes, you really get to know the essence of that person. Again, not wanting to use paper and ink could also be an indication that he did indeed. He might have had other news and maybe some encouragement. Maybe he even had identification of some of the false teachers. But he's choosing to protect this specific church from any backlash. He didn't say it to excuse himself from traveling because even though he's old, he's not too old to travel. Walking in true fellowship and case by truth and love organically builds this longing for affinity in the spiritual sense. It speaks to those two words, forever, that we talked about last week. A sense of prolonged and unlimited essence, existence with the creature of all, the creator of all, making it endless without our boundaries of ordinary time and space. And have you noticed that when we get to doing that here in class or whenever we get the chance to get into small groups, it's kind of hard to stop sometimes, isn't it? It really is. We're going and going, and it's 8 o'clock, and we're still going. 
It is that depth of knowing God that feeds our longing for him and the life he has declared is ours in this life and the next. This is that our joy may be full that John is writing about throughout his writings in the Bible. Fellowship was key then and it's key now. Romans 1.12 says that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. The children of your elect sister greet you, he says in the last verse, amen. Again, John could be talking of someone specifically. However, most scholars believe it was a secret code speech. And we went over the four different possibilities. Those could have been last week. Um, He didn't want to draw attention to them because of the extreme persecution, especially if he was writing to someone like Mary, because that's one of the possibilities that we looked at in the four potential options. The mother of Jesus, Jesus called upon him to protect her and care for her, so he certainly would have done it. Elect sister is just equaling a symbol for the church, a particular church. We can sum up Second John by saying, the fruit of our righteousness is obedience to God and love towards others. For you to take home and peruse are two different pieces of information of research I did studies ago. One's called Who Was John? And the other one is the foundation stones of Jesus' church, who were the 12 disciples and some of the other people um, that we that we read about in the Bible. Um, hopefully, after we get through with Third John, um, through the end of November, we'll have a little break and you can take these home and enjoy them. One of the things I absolutely have to end with, though, is don't be afraid to be different. John was very different (laughs) in so many ways from the other 11 disciples. Although the book of John is included in the Gospels, he omitted the following. No genealogy, neither Jesus' legal bloodline through Joseph, nor his personal through Mary. There is no account of Jesus' birth No description of his baptism, nothing about his temptations. There's no account of his transfiguration, and John was there. (laughs) I think I would have written about it. I would have said, whoa, what about this? No mentioning of the appointing of the apostles. Not once is Christ seen praying in the book of John. We never read in John's gospel about the coming of the Son of Man for the same reason as Jesus is never addressed as the son of David. We never find the words repent or forgive, nor any accounting of Christ's ascension in this fourth gospel. And I think the moral of the story is John knew what God wanted him to do, just like the 11 disciples. Well, 10 of them. Well, even the 11. Yeah. And he did it. So my challenge to us before we go into third John is, do you not... Do you know what God wants you to do? It's pretty important to know. If you do, what's left to do? Just be obedient to it. Go for it. Run towards it. Embrace it. Then we are totally embracing love and truth, I believe. You also have a copy of your discussion questions for the second week. And we are going to finish this part with reading the armor of God. One day in our small groups, this lovely lady and I, and that lovely lady, we were looking at Ephesians 6 and we got so excited. I think we will discover it again as we read it together. So everyone get out your armor of God and let's read it. You know, so many times we we look at Ephesians 6.10 through maybe 18, but we don't push through 19 and 20. All right, let's go. In conclusion, be strong in the Lord. Draw your strength from him and be empowered through your union with him and in the power of his boundless might. Put on the full armor of God for his precepts are like the splendid armor 
of a heavily armed soldier so that you may be able to successfully stand up against all the schemes and all the strategies. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, contending only with physical opponents, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this present darkness, against the spiritual force in the heavenly supernatural places. Therefore, put on the complete armor of God so that you will be able to successfully resist and stand your ground in the evil day of danger. And having done everything that the crisis demands to stand firm in your place, fully prepared, immovable, victorious. So stand firm and hold your ground or occupy, having tightened the wide band of truth, personal integrity, moral courage around your waist, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, an upright heart, and having strapped on your feet the gospel of peace in preparation to face the enemy with firm-footed stability and the readiness produced by the good news. Above all, lift up the protective shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray with specific request at all times, on every occasion and in every season in the spirit. And with this in view, stay alert with all perseverance and petition, interceding in prayer for all God's people. And pray for me, for us, that words may be given to us when we open our mouths to proclaim boldly the mystery of the good news of salvation, for which we are an ambassador in chains, and pray that in proclaiming it, we may speak boldly and courageously as we should. So what are we supposed to do? We are supposed to proclaim boldly the mystery of the Gospels. Wow, what an assignment. 